0: If you've ever fallen asleep with your arms overhead and your hands go numb, you're gonna to wanna to watch this video. Good morning. Happy Monday. I have neurocoffee in hand and it is perfect. Dr. Mike, nice batch. Okay, so we had a pretty decent weekend. Um, looking forward to a great week this week as usual, and I got a great QA to start off um, the week. And this comes from Zach with the CH and Zach says, "Thank you for all the time you 're putting in to answer these questions you 're welcome, Zach. I was hoping that you could speak of the potential causes of thoracic outlet syndrome as it pertains to your model. When thinking about how it was taught in school, I think about the different sites of compression and he mentioned scalenes, costoclavicular, and pecs, Um, but would be curious to hear about some of the underlying mechanisms you feel are responsible for symptoms and subsequent treatment strategies. Thank you so much. Zach, this is a great question because it applies to a lot of people so thorac- thoracic outlet syndrome symptoms, um, typically pain, numbness in your arm, some neck stuff. You're going to have some some tissue sensitivity in, in the pec or, or, or neck region. But a lot of folks have a really mild um, presentation of this, especially at nighttime. You'll notice it for those of you that like to sleep with your arms overhead and your arms go numb. This is sort of a, a, a mild variation of this. And so um, for those of you who feel that, this might come in handy. Um, You mentioned the three big sites. So so we talk about uh, minor is a big one, the costoclavicular space is a big one, and then the scalene triangle are are all big ones. Um, If you you look for references in regards to uh, behavior of the nervous system, you wanna look at at Berg, um, Butler, and Shacklock. And so those are the guys that are gonna talk about the, the movement of the nervous system. In, in each case, what you'll find is, is that the nerves like three things. They like space, they like movement, like, they like blood flow, and thoracic outlet or, or pec minor syndrome or whatever they're going to they're gonna call this thing immediately takes away all three so we lose our space we lose movement and we lose blood flow because you get that neurovascular sleeve that that tracks out of the out of the neck underneath the clavicle in front of the rib and under the pec minor down into the arm and so if we have any form of compressive strategy under those circumstances we're probably going to get some variation on the theme of any of those symptoms but if we look at this from a, a progressive nature so if we talk about symptoms at, at pec minor, under those circumstances, t- typically what we're gonna have is we're gonna have a down pump handle under those circumstances. And, and so what we're gonna lose here from a measurement standpoint is our traditional measures of shoulder internal rotation, which you would measure at, at uh, 90 degrees of, of uh, traditional abduction. Um, if we go farther up, if, if the compression strategy is moving upward and we're going to get a, a maneuver that gets pulled down, this is where we're going to see symptoms at the costoclavicular space. And what we're going to lose here is we're going to lose internal rotation behind the back. So your old, old school aptly scratch test where you reach behind your back, try to touch the opposite shoulder blade, you're going to lose internal rotation there as we move up. The, the sequence of events in regards to compressive strategies. If we get compressed in the upper dorsal rostral space, this is where we're gonna to start to see, see the issues in the, the scalene triangle. So we're gonna lose lower cervical rotation under these circumstances um, to the affected side. Um, you're gonna get some, some pain with rotation away from the affected side as well. You might get cervicogenic headaches, um, you 're typically going to have some some symptoms that are well above the clavicle under those circumstances, so again, your traditional tests are going to be cervical rotation um, as well as the traditional abduction external rotation test, which looks like that 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 doorway stretch which we 'll talk about here in just a second but But what we may not lose and, and this is kind of an important thing to pay attention to is we may not lose our early uh, flexion range of motion, uh, because we may not be looking at end game strategies. Because what we what we probably see under these circumstances more often than not is anything that's dorsal, rostral, or sternal and above being the primary uh, influences in, in regards to the to the compression. Now, let's talk about traditional strategy first. Um, under many circumstances, so that the stretch and strengthen uh, model that that many will default to for some unknown reason. Um, may actually work uh, occasionally, but it's kind of iffy. And I think it's even iffy in the research when when you look at it. So you'll look at something like the traditional pec doorway stretch, like I mentioned just a minute ago. Um under those circumstances you're trying to to influence a concentrically oriented muscle by yanking on it. So you might get a yielding strategy out of that and get some maybe some temporary symptomatic relief if you can if you can hit a breath under the right circumstances. So if I had like a down pump handle but I don't have dorsal rostral compression yet. That position actually might bring the pump handle up if I take a breath at the right time, and then I actually do favorably influence symptoms. But if I have dorsal rostral compression at the same time, then um, it's going to be an exercise in futility. This is also a situation where I wouldn't want to use like like the traditional lower trapezius strengthening or scapular muscle strengthening because all I'm doing is reinforcing the compressive strategy A to P and I'm really not gonna impact symptoms. In fact, you're probably gonna produce symptoms during the treatment in, in and of itself. So what we really wanna do here, uh, Zach, is we wanna to start to create expansion um, from, from the bottom up. So the lungs fill from the bottom up. So let's think along those lines as far as strategy is concerned. How we're gonna approach this from narrows to wides, is not a whole lot different. It's just gonna be where we're gonna we're gonna start our influence. So if I'm talking about a wide ISA, I'm gonna start with dorsal rostral expansion as my primary primary target. And under these circumstances, we've got any number of activities that we're gonna to utilize to try to expand that that dorsal rostral space. Um, Because of of where we're trying to influence this, because of the influence of of shoulder girdle position, I'm going to stay below that 90 degree level of of traditional shoulder flexion to start so I can drive the expansion posteriorly and then again work my way up. Um, If I'm progressing a wide after the dorsal rostro expansion, now I'm going to go after pump handle. But with with the narrows, I'm probably going to start with these pump handle activities. So now I am moving the shoulder towards that 90 degrees of flexion. So I've got quadruped activities that that I could start with. Um, my, My arm bar progressions I can also start with. The cool thing about the arm bar progressions is that I can probably start to superimpose some of the neck range of motion on top of that as long as I'm not reproducing symptoms under those circumstances. Now if I have, if I have limitations that are below the clavicle then I may not need to go any farther and this might, might be my solution. However if I start to see symptoms above where I'm, I am getting the, the neck pain, the, the headaches that are associated with this now I definitely have to go after my upper dorsal rostral expansion because I need end range shoulder flexion, and I need lower cervical rotation to to the affected side. So under these circumstances, what we would look at when I have this upper DR compression, is I have a scenario where I cannot get into an early propulsive strategy. And so that's what these activities are gonna be driven towards. So again, I can start to use my arm bar progressions with, with cervical rotation. If you're a kettlebell get up guy, Um, go do the get up to elbow and then drive the shoulder rotation and and cervical rotation simultaneously just like you do with with the arm bar superimpose some breathing on top of that and you get a nice big bang exercise just an fyi but what i want to do is i want to start to work the the shoulder from that 90 degrees and above range so i'm going to start doing my walkouts from my knees if i can get to an inverted um, activity like an inverted lazy bear, then then I'm going to go there. Ultimately, what I want to be able to do is I want to hit that end range flexion um, with, without symptoms. So I might end up using like a cable activity like you can see on screen right now. But the thing that I gotta want to make sure of, especially with my wide ISA, is this, that I can close that ISA with that overhead reach. So, so to get expansion all the way up on a wide ISA, the ISA has to be able to close. Also, keep in mind the idiosyncratic movement strategies associated with the wide ISA typically do not have end range flexion included there, so be very, very careful with that. Now, some counterintuitive stuff, which is always kind of fun to play with because there's always challenges with with your patients and you may not be able to drive the upper extremities the, the way you want to without creating symptoms. So now we're going to use some iterative structures to our advantage here. So if i put you in a prone propulsive position what i'm doing is i'm creating an early propulsive strategy in in the um, the lower uh, axial skeleton so so I'm, i'm turning the sacrum i'm turning the lumbar spine which is analogous to my my upper dorsal and lower cervical and so i actually may be able to drive expansion that way to start to create the early propulsive strategies through the axial skeleton my offset heels elevated um, squatting activities will also produce a similar effect. So so keep those on the table. Don't forget about, about how we can influence this, especially when you're, when you're really jammed up and you can't seem to drive symptoms or if somebody is too symptomatic in the affected area. Um, one of my, my favorite, totally counterintuitive kind of things is using this curl and press activity. The thing you want to make sure of is that you're doing the curl and the press on the asymptomatic side because what I'm actually doing is I'm pressing that dumbbell overhead and turning my head away is I'm com- intentionally creating a compressive strategy in the in the upper dorsal and lower cervical region on the pressing side. But I, in return, I get expansion and I get rotation to the opposite side. So that's going to actually help alleviate some of the symptoms above the, the the clavicle. So this would be much like if you go back to the reverse hyper uh, video that we did a little while back, how we used the single leg reverse hyper to create some of the turning through the sacrum. We're doing the exact same thing in the dorsal, rostral, and lower cervical um, space there. So um, Zach, great question. I think it's going to help a lot of people. Truly appreciate you. Um, if you've got any other questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I'll see you guys tomorrow. This segment seems like it's all about the bench press lockout, but it's so much more. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have Neural Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. A little something different for today. I wanted to post up another segment from last week's um, Coffee & Coaches call. It was such a, such a good call. We went 90 minutes and you've only seen like a small segment of this. The the foundation of this this question is about bench press lockouts and and methods to to address issues with that. But there's so much more in in this question um, as far as reasoning and decision making, um, along with the technical aspects of of how you might work through through this uh, uh, situation where you're trying to improve someone's bench press lockout. So thanks to Manuel for this question to lead us into it, and so let's just go right into the the uh, segment from the call.
1: Bill, I have a question about one of your videos. Okay. If I, uh, unless uh, somebody else has a question, are you gonna,
0: are you, you going to make me go back and watch one or something?
1: No, no, okay, no. I, I like can you. describe it. No, it's a um, it was a is a demo video about uh, improving your bench press lockout. And oh yeah,
0: the, with the with the armbar thingy.
1: Yeah, it was an arm yeah. bar with your with your leg up, and I was wondering, can you explain uh, why that works
0: and yes, it, the
1: context of your model and and whatnot. I mean, I can understand, you know, just locking out and having something there and rotating, but you had your you were you had your leg up and you were breathing in a certain way, and so if you could yeah. go into that, that'd be great. So
0: exhalation, internal rotation, pronation, all that stuff, okay, is is force producing. Mm -hmm. okay and and so what what you were looking at is the coordinative effect of that
1: okay why is your leg up you had one leg up i think it was the opposite leg
0: right i'm because i'm trying to i'm trying to i'm trying to create a a uh, um a posterior yielding strategy on the opposite side okay so I get expansion on the anterior side so I can capture the internal rotation. Because <clears throat> I believe I was turning the kettlebell inward. Am I correct? Right, right. It was internal rotation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I have to have, so if I, I I have to have concentric orientation posteriorly. So I'm at 90 degrees of 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 shoulder elevation, which would put the scap in an upwardly rotated position. Okay. But I, I need concentric orientation there so I can create a, enough expansion anteriorly as I internally rotate so I can internally rotate under that circumstance so I can coordinate internal rotation with pronation, right? And the exhale strategy.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay.
0: But the lockout, the lockout, it tends to be like an elbow ish kind of a concept, right?
1: Yeah. And, and so in that case would you also do some supplementary tricep work uh why some direct arm work or why or bench press lockouts like uh with the off a board or off so what ends? would be most
0: specific to to training your lockout uh,
1: doing like rack lockouts or something like that or or off a board so
0: so So you're looking at one exercise and then you just gave me five different options of, of the potential, uh, uh, utility. Right. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Yeah. So which one's right.
1: I mean, I I tend to go with the one that has the most carryover, the one that's the most similar.
0: Right. How do you know which one that is? Uh, I, it's okay. You're on the right track. Say it. I know what you're going to say.
1: I mean, because it, it looks like the movement, it's
0: yeah. It's you just do it because it looks like the right thing to do. Mm. That's that's a good answer. That's legal, mm. right? It stands to reason. If I'm if I'm having a bench press lockout problem, I should probably work on the lockout. But mm. what if I identified an element of coordinative uh, um, deficit? Right. So like, I couldn't get enough internal rotation. I couldn't get the elbow to extend at the same time. I can't get enough of the yielding strategy that I need to even get the position because, but here's what happens. If, if I bench press a lot, eventually I create so much compression that I can't move. Yeah. So, so, People top out in force production because they create so much pressure. They can't get any stronger because they have no yielding strategies to allow the motion to occur. So it stops the lockout from actually occurring. Very counterintuitive. Like literally, if I compress my sternum hard enough. So think about, okay, if you're bench pressing and you're a bodybuilder, why are you bench pressing? Simple answer. Big chest. Big chest, okay. Right. So that chest is attached to your sternum. And if the sternum is compressed, I can't internally rotate my shoulder. But to finish my lockout, I need some internal rotation. But what Mm -hmm. if I compress my chest so much that I can't finish the lockout? I need another strategy that's going to help me coordinate, right, the, the rotation so I can get the elbow to fully extend. So then lockouts don't work.
1: Right. And, it, and might that's be my
0: first, it might be my first experiment because it looks just like I'm trying like, and it might work just fine. But what if I need another strategy?
1: Like tricep extensions?
0: Well, if you want to think like a structural reductionist, you know, modeler, that's fine. Maybe I'm, I'm trying
1: to move away from
0: that. <laughs> well, but hang on, hang on. So what what does the tricep extension provide you that might work? It's not a bench press. So I get less compressive strategy here, and now I can access internal rotation of the shoulder and the lockout, right? Okay. But if I do something that's bilateral and symmetrical, maybe I still get some compression that stops me from accessing the the full excursion of the extremity. Then I need to do something else that doesn't have as much pressure involved that creates enough yielding strategy so I can access the motion first. Then I slowly superimpose the intensity back on, Right, And then that allows me to capture position. Mm-hmm. You ever notice that people top out and they plateau in strength and then you change the program and then they slowly get stronger and stronger again? Mm-hmm. Because the mechanics are different, the, the strategy that, the, that I'm utilizing has to be different. And that might allow me to access something that the previous program stopped me from getting. Mm-hmm. Too much pressure stops motion. That's what it's supposed to do. That's why strength training becomes interference for dynamic athletes at some point in time. They, they, their force production goes up and up and up, but to to capture that force production, they have to reduce the amount of motion that they have access to. It's a a give and take. It's like, that's how you know how strong somebody needs to be at that moment in time. get them as strong as humanly possible until it becomes interference.
1: Uh, Do you use uh, any assessments to guide that decision-making so you know if you see this person that has a lockout issue you know i mean do you do you do the bench press lockout first and see what happens or do you have a way to test whether they should do tricep extensions or something else
0: what what would you do like like what's the first logical step
1: yeah i i would do I would just do the lockouts and see, yeah. I see I mean, what happens.
0: That is the most logical thing to do because it is it is the most specific. It's the easiest thing to, to do from from a, an experimental standpoint. And it doesn't require a tremendous amount of, of process. It's like, hey, let's work on that lockout. Now, let me offer you this. So you, you do the lockout thingy and it's not going. Like, like it doesn't help. Like they can't access the position. Right? Because you know what I need at the end. I need, I need an element of internal rotation. I need an element of yielding strategy to allow that to happen. I need to be able to extend, fully extend the elbow in a pronated position. Right. What if I can't do that? That means I don't have access to that range of motion. There's too much pressure. Okay, that to allow that motion to occur. This is your first call. So constant right. orientation creates pressure. Okay, pressure in certain places limits motion because that's what it's supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm. So once again, it's like, okay, so I might have too much load in a certain place that does not allow the motion to occur. If I can't capture the rotation in the shoulder, I need to find an activity that's gonna allow that to happen so I can get the lockout. And then you work backwards towards the primary movement.
1: So if somebody walks into your gym and has this issue, I mean, uh, would you, would you first? Would you look at their ISA? Would you measure that first, and then go from there, or would you just still just go with the lockouts?
0: Well, do you understand what I understand? What do you mean? No, you're older you than me. You know what I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just asking. Maybe you- no, no, I don't. I don't know okay. what you know. All right. So, so, so we can't really talk about my process too much now, can we?
1: Uh, how
0: valuable? Hang on. How valuable to you? Is the information you just asked me about so 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 how valuable to you is an ISA? Um,
1: I mean it's the, just the the whole concept of ISA and breathing. I think it's been really interesting, and I'm exploring it more so that, to see if I can expand my toolbox and also
0: okay.
1: how I go about uh, addressing things that I see in the weightlifting hall.
0: Gotcha. So so if we're talking about a bench press lockout. Okay, high force, high force. What would be your expectation that would be a favorable representation of an ISA for somebody that has to produce high force, strong exhalation, strong exhalation, right? Concentric orientation, internal rotation. What would be your expectation that I should see in an optimal situation for that level of performance? Do you know?
1: Uh, It should be a wide ISA.
0: Damn straight, okay think you can spot that one from across the room?
1: I think so. <laughs> I would expect somebody that's really broad. And-
0: yeah, exactly. Okay. So do I have that? Good. Step one. I know I've got somebody that's got a potential for high force production or, or a good exhalation strategy at least, right? Now, I put him under the bar. We're doing lockouts and he can't get his elbows to lock out. Okay. He can't do it. He can't do it. All right. What what does that tell you in regards to the position that is required to access the lockout? Knowing now that you need internal rotation, pronation to access that. If he can't lock his elbows out, what's the limiting factor?
1: I mean, again, I would just think it would be the triceps, but you know, like you said, it, position, could be, position, it could be it could be internal talking rotation.
0: rotation. I'm not taught. Talk- so say again, say the last uh, one. Uh,
1: it could be internal rotation. It
0: doesn't have enough internal rotation. So it's not really a triceps weakness now, is it? So if I train the bejesus out of triceps, maybe I accidentally get the internal rotation, right? But if I chase a muscle problem for a positional issue, right, I might be barking up the wrong tree. I might use the wrong strategy. Under certain circumstances, under certain circumstances, I might accidentally do the right thing by chasing a muscle. But if I look at this conceptually and I say, okay, what elements are required for me to access that elbow extension, shoulder internal rotation and pronation. If I see somebody that can't lock out, that means they're, they're like, literally, they're either producing too much pressure, or too much force that I can't extend the elbow and finish. Right. So I got to figure out a way for me to access the position. And so now I have this reductionist strategy where I go, the most specific thing didn't work. What's the next thing that I would do? So if you say chase triceps and let's just say that you do an inverted um, easy bar tricep extension, right? And they get extension in that position. You just did the right thing. You see it? You gave them an activity that allowed them to capture the position that you're trying to get in the press at the elbow. So under those circumstances, they were able to access enough internal rotation to produce the desired outcome. So then you train that and then you go back to the bench press and you go, did it work? Because you just changed the context. So I don't know if I got a transferable activity. I just know that the activity that I chose before allowed the outcome that I wanted in the bench press, right? right? And so then you go back to the bench press, you say, did they lock it out better? If, if they did, you go, I'm the most, I'm the smartest guy in the world. It was triceps the whole time. It wasn't triceps. It was the internal rotation. Well, I hope that was useful for you. Um, if you have any questions, please go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I will see you guys tomorrow. If you've got a left shoulder pain that's been diagnosed as an impingement, you're going to want to watch this video. Good morning. Happy. Wednesday, I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. All right, Wednesday. Press for time. Got to crank this one out. So we're going to dive right into the Q and A. This one comes from Jason, and so. Um, Jason said he had an interesting case. He was struggling to interpret the chessboard, and so that's exactly what we're gonna do. So we're gonna take a look at this chessboard, at least the information that he's going to provide to us, and then we will try to deconstruct this thing a little bit. So um, what we wanna do is we're gonna look at the measures that that Jason took, and we're gonna start by reconstructing the pelvis because the pelvis representation is a little bit easier to see than it is in the thorax, but we'll try to give you a, give you an example of what this actually looks like. So let me grab the pelvis for a sec. <clears throat> so again, this is a guy with um, left shoulder pain that's been diagnosed as an impingement, um, but we've got some some pelvis measures which are great because our iterations give us confirmations of positions and like I said it's a little bit easier to see in the pelvis. So. Um, when in doubt, we're going to start with with the basic foundation. So Jason says that this guy is a narrow ISA. So right away, we know we're going to see a representation that's going to, going to start to to ER these, these ilium. We're going to start to counter-nutate this, this sacrum. Now, he throws us some, some information. On the left side, we've got left hip ER at 60. We've got... Um, IR at 20 degrees on this side. So remember when we're talking about narrow ISAs, that we're always going to be biased back towards an ER position, so we're going to have more ER than IR. Um, if we have full excursion of the hip under those circumstances, we're going to have about 100 degrees of total excursion. So right away, when we start seeing 60 degrees of, of ER, 20 degrees of IR, we know we're in a deficit. And so we probably have some measure of loss of that extra orientation that we would naturally gain from just being a narrow ISA. So we're going to start thinking that Oh, we've got an anterior orientation going on here. Now, if we flip over to the other side, we go to the right hip and we get a 45 degrees of ER, 45 degrees of of IR. So now what that's gonna tell us again, we've got an anterior orientation, but we've got a lot more going on the right side. So right now we gotta start thinking like, okay, I'm on this oblique axis because I've I've got a greater loss of ER here. If I've got 40 degrees of internal rotation under these circumstances, I got a pretty decent tilt here because the only way that i'm going to pick up 45 degrees of iron under the circumstances is to get the acetalium facing down so i've got a situation that looks like this and actually if we want to get really technical watch this close it's going to look kind of like that okay that's more like what we're going to see with this this type of a right oblique axis where you're going to see sort of like an elevation of this this ilium the reason i bring this up is because what it's gonna look like in the thorax is gonna be very similar. So it's gonna look kinda of like that, okay? So under these circumstances, I actually have the same orientation in, in the thorax as I do in the pelvis. And so when we look at the shoulder measures now, so if we, if we look at the chessboard, we've got a lot of uh, internal rotation deficit on the left side and um, most likely, most likely we're gonna have um, an ER deficit on, on that right side. Now why doesn't it measure that way on the table? So as he lays back on the table because of the orientation he's going to fall back into the right and so what that does is it magnifies our ER measure so we always have to be aware of what the constraint is that we're measuring against so, so pay attention to that. Now so how are we gonna undo this thing? So we have a right oblique axis. So we know we gotta be pushing back on this, this left oblique. We might need a place to go here because if we look at the, again, the pelvis as a representation, I'm gonna have some concentric orientation here that's gonna hang on to this ILA um, with, with of the sacrum as I, as I tip on that axis. So I got to be careful here and I might need to address that, that first. So what we may have to do is go into a hook line position to address that and sort of build this from the ground up. So I'm going to create a yielding strategy on the left side and I'm going to push that right side forward potentially in, in hook line. If I can move to other positions that are gonna keep the shoulder in a non-provocative position, so I wanna be below that 90 degrees where I'm typically in a field of discomfort, then maybe I can use you know, some, some form of posterior lower expansion activities. Um, I could use my supine cross connect, which I just love, because that actually uses the compensatory strategy on the right side to create us um, some, some expansion on the left side and recapture the position of this tuberosity. So I gotta pull this tuberosity back down and so that supine cross connect allows us to do this. Now, as I work on this person, I want to make sure that I'm maintaining this, this left posterior expansion and starting to drive the right side forward. One of the easier ways for me to do this actually is to roll them to their left side and create a middle propulsive um, activity. Um, and I can throw a right, right reaching activity on top of that. And that's going to help me create this, this actually posterior left diagonal that I'm going to need to offset the the, um, right oblique axis tilt. This can eventually become um, a right arm bar activity, Um, but again, I want to start in these non-provocative positions to start. If I still can't get the shoulder to where I want it to go, um, if you look at uh, the, uh, the the chessboard, we did have access to about 90 degrees of shoulder flexion. So I actually start to create this middle propulsive strategy in a prone activity um, by driving it from the pelvis upward. So again, I'm going to get my my left turn. I'm pushing with the right right lower extremity to help create that that right oblique axis. As I'm working through this middle propulsive range, I can do an offset push-up, which creates a very, very similar uh, representation as it would to to the high-low press. But again, I'm moving closer and closer to that 90 degrees of shoulder elevation. So again, um, as to when you're gonna implement this, it's gonna depend on on where the symptoms are and how much shoulder flexion that you're gaining. This can actually uh, be done in the gym to some degree as well, so I can use my old school triceps kickback. If I use my left arm support as I kick the dumbbell back in this triceps activity, what I'm actually doing is I'm compressing that right scapula against the thorax, which is again my, my turn back and to the left on the oblique axis. Eventually, of course, I want to get you standing up, so i got to account for that. Um, I love my chops. Under these circumstances, I can start in a staggered stance. I might be able to do this right away. I can make it kind of look like a triceps activity at first, so I don't take the shoulder into that provocative position, but I'm going to create the, the, the posterior left oblique shift by pushing through that right foot, and eventually, I just expand outward in my chopping activities. I turn that into more of like a, like a side split or a side split squat. Um, and then ultimately what I wanna be able to do is I wanna get my, my arm above shoulder level. So this is gonna to progress to a landmine situation. Um, so um, what I wanna do here is probably start with my right arm. I, again, it's gonna help me create this, this backward left oblique um, axis position that I'm trying to drive to offset the, the right anterior oblique. Um, so uh, um, Jason, I hope that gives you a, a couple of ideas Um, to work with at least to get you started Um, and for all of you that might be dealing with this this same issue what you got here is a left compressive strategy anterior and posterior and so this is going to be one of the easier ways for you to address these kind of things hope that's helpful i apologize for being rushed today but i am short on time everybody have a great wednesday remember coffee and coaches conference call tomorrow morning 6 (laughs) a.m hope to see you there have a great day and i'll see you tomorrow Happy Thursday, I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect. <laughs> I have a question. Oh, no one minds.
1: Uh, so in regards to um, early versus late propulsion, um, my impression is posteriorly on the hip, it's content yielding for both of them, um, but I know there's a difference um because the foot is different um and so i was regard i was wondering in regards to like the ischial tuberosity
0: um exactly what is going on there between the two because i exactly. connect exactly exactly <laughs> okay so I'm trying to check that the head hang on, I to well, hang on. let's let's just talk this through mm-hmm. let's make an assumption that we're moving forward okay is that fair All right That's how we know that both sides are concentric because they're going in the same direction. So I have, so the, so the, the muscle orientation has to be the same if I'm going in the same direction, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. If I'm walking, so I'm stepping, right? So one foot is going ahead of the other, you know, in a reciprocal fashion, okay? To get one foot ahead of the other, the one side has to slow down to allow the other one to be faster, okay? Now, knowing what we know about the, the rate of load on connective tissues, that's how we determine an overcoming versus a yielding strategy, right? Mm-hmm. And so, so if, if I have a delay on one side and it's concentrically oriented, so it's still moving forward, it's just gonna move forward at a slower rate, means I gotta pop out the parachute on that side to slow that side down so the other side can get ahead, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. then that becomes concentric yielding on that side, okay? As I, as I move the other side forward, right? I'm still concentric because we're all going in the same direction, okay? But because I need that to go faster, then those connective tissues are gonna be loaded at a higher rate, which means I'm gonna have an overcoming action, okay? So far so good? So far so good. Okay. So if I'm creating a delay on, on one side, so, so so, think about, so as, as the first metatarsal head on the, let's just say the right foot, okay? To make life simple, we'll, we'll make a very specific example here. When the first met head hits the ground on the right foot, okay, the foot doesn't move. It's no longer going forward, right? So that means that's the side I gotta slow down on. So that's where I start to yield. I actually begin my yielding, action at that point when the first metatarsal head hits the ground okay so all the way up so all the way from the foot up through the pelvis into the axial skeleton up into the thorax that side is starting to yield so it's holding back okay so if i'm doing that if i'm doing that then um, to advance the other side then i have to compress that posterior lower aspect on the left side to get it to go forward, right? Because mm-hmm. I have to get the spine to turn, we're talking about the, the right yield, I have to get the spine to turn to the right, okay? All right? And I would do that through the lowest part of the spine which would be the sacrum, right? So that ischial tuberosity is being compressed closer to the, to the sacrum, I have extra rotation of the femur, right? And so if you think about like the, I could probably just show you on momentum. You guys know how to pin the video so you, so you can blow it up on your screen if you need to. You go to the upper right-hand corner of my little little box. There's a three-dot thing and you can pin it so it make, it'll make it bigger. So I need the spine to turn that way, which means I need to compress this. And this has to be an ER, so it's gonna do that. See it? So everything goes like that. So I get my turn, I get my yield over here, I get my overcoming here. See it? Got it? Make sense?
2: Yes. Cool. Bill, can you elaborate a little bit on, on how this changes when you're accelerating to something versus decelerating because, I mean, does it just make basically a bigger parachute on the backside so that you're not slowing, or you're not, uh, I guess you're delaying more. So you need to essentially that bigger expansion on the backside. Okay,
0: so, ooh, I don't like that feedback. Um, If So you're talking about like if I was running forward and I had to come to a stop or change directions?
2: right like sports are, it's all well and good to analyze this gotcha. straight line 100 meter gotcha. dash
0: but yeah okay do i need to stop my forward movement
2: eventually if you're going to change direction yeah
0: okay if i'm going to come to a stop if i'm so if i'm running forward i wanted to run backward right
2: or even if yeah if you just wanted to come to a stop
0: okay so if i got to come to a stop what 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 movement do I need, ER or IR?
2: If you wanna to come to a stop, if yes, you decelerate, you're gonna need ER.
0: Oh, really? If I'm gonna stop, what's what movement stops motion, IR yeah. or ER? IR? IR. Thank you. So why do you lower your center of gravity when you when you come to a stop or change direction?
2: So you can put force into the ground?
0: So I can capture a position of internal rotation, right? Then I can put force into the ground. If I try to put force into the ground in an eard position, I have a sprained ankle, mm-hmm. right? So, so, so now think about what what you're asking me. So we step into it. There's a there's certainly a delay when I first make my initial contact. So so I make my initial contact with the ground to decelerate, change direction or whatever it might be. Same process that I was just talking about, about creating the delay strategy, right? So I will be in an early propulsive strategy. However, if I'm going to come to a stop, the amount of force that I have to apply to the ground is radically different from me just stepping over with the other foot and continuing to walk, which means that that now I'm gonna, so remember when I flip flopped the mechanics from standing bipedal to quadruped? Mm-hmm. So now I just flip-flop my mechanics because I'm, I'm bending the hip more. I'm lowering my center of gravity like a squat. And now I got to produce more force into the ground in internal rotation. So not only sense. did I have to initiate the delay with an early propulsive strategy, I got to get to mid max propulsion to stop, which is max IR into the ground. Right. So my foot position is going to be different. I'm going to have a, I'm going to get all the way to max P probably. Right. If depending on how fast I'm going. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So where's the parent. So if I'm lowering my center of gravity, if I'm going to like cut change direction or just pure pure deceleration into the ground, where's the parachute now? So in early propulsion, I have a counter-nutated sacrum on an ER ilium, right? That's where the parachute is. That's where I slow down. That's the expansion. As I lower my center of gravity and try to come to a complete stop and jam force into the ground, where's the parachute now?
2: It's going to be lower posterior.
0: Absolutely. So now I actually flip-flop the position of my sacrum. I flip-flop the position of the ilium because I have to create that that much stronger expansion in the, in the posterior outlet of the pelvis. Otherwise, I can't stop.
2: So, yeah. So it's not a bigger parachute. It's just where, where is it? Where is the
0: parachute? That is correct. Absolutely. Based
1: on kind of what you were talking about earlier and that not that it's trial and error, but in the sake of Nate, and I think more so even for Borbala in the sake of myself, I'm just trying to figure out and piece some of this stuff together of like, okay, what do the shapes look like? What do I need to do to alter those shapes? Um, in some ways it feels like i'm just playing with my clients and i don't know that they would necessarily want that not that
0: why not uh,
1: i don't know i i guess i'm 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 placing more expectation that they're putting expectation on me
0: right they they want to change
1: there and they're identifying something as progress and if they're not seeing that or i'm not actually communicating that i don't actually know what i'm doing fully well
0: Hey Grace, can I let you know a secret? Sure. I don't know what I'm doing either. That's not true though. It is true. It's relative, Grace. It is true. Okay. So so here's the deal. <clears throat> um, you've been you've been working three years? Yeah. Okay. So I'm I have 10 times the experience. <clears throat> Ouch. Doesn't mean you don't know anything. It just means that my ability to to shift the probabilities in my favor is better. That's it. That's it. So 86% of the time. Okay. Yeah. I'm 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 more likely to have the outcome that I want. Right. Okay. You don't have that percentage yet. Yes. Okay. Do you think do you think that I experiment with my clients? Yes absolutely i do <laughs> cuz i don't know what the answer is going to be this is one of the things that people have to get have to get comfortable with so this is a byproduct of working in the complex domain so the complex domain means that there is a cause and effect we just don't know what it is and we can sometimes figure that out after the fact that's why i always say test figure out what you're looking at from your perspective and then do something safe and then see what happens cuz I don't know what the see what happens is sure okay N- you don't either that's that is a byproduct of working in complexity cuz I don't know what I don't know what anyone's experience is up to the point that they start working with me sure. it's like they've lived a life they have perceptions they have beliefs They have behaviors, right? I have no idea how that's gonna influence the outcome. If somebody doesn't like the color of my room, I'll fail. I might not know it's the color of my room ever, but what if it's that?
1: Sure.
0: Right? Because I don't know. Trial and error exists because it's very scientific right? What you're going to do over time though, is instead of having like only two possibilities of influence, you're going to say, I have 12 possibilities of influence. My experience tells me that these three over here are more likely to get the outcome that that I want. But what if those three don't work? Then I've got nine other possibilities that I might be able to influence that I can slowly superimpose and say, I'm going to do this one. And see what happens. And I go back and I wait and I go, oh, that's exactly what I wanted. I'm gonna do more of that. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Or it doesn't work. Okay, take that one out. What's the next one? It doesn't mean you don't see that's when you know what you're doing. See, that's the thing that people don't don't grasp. It's 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 like it's like that's how you work with with a complex system is is that I'm narrowing probabilities and I have to try to understand as many possible influences as I can. So 27 years from now, when you're on your zoom call with your, with your people, right. They, they want to come on and they, they want to see what Grace is talking about. Okay. They're going to have the same problem, right? Because they've been looking at the cookbook and the recipe said, do this. And then the recipe didn't work. Yeah. Right. And you're gonna say, oh, well, there's 36, when I say 12 things, you're gonna go, oh, there's 37 things that you have to consider now, <laughs> right? But these six will be the ones that you're probably gonna to wanna to do under this circumstance, because based on my experience, it's more likely that those six are, are gonna be, be uh, providing the outcome that you're looking for, right? Because you're starting from so, a higher level. That's why I gave you 37 instead of 12. Thank you. How do you decide what to do with a new patient or client? Good morning. Happy Friday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. I have a much busier Friday than usual. So I'm going to dig right into today's Q&A. It's a little bit more on the decision making um, end of, of the concepts rather than what we would typically talk about where we're talking about cases or presentations or things. But it's, it's a very important aspect of things um, because it, it does help us through our decision-making process as we work with a new client or a new patient. This will be a skewed a little bit towards the physical therapy side of things as a, as a, a, as a background. But it's still going to apply to, to anybody that has to work directly with human beings, um, especially uh, in the fitness and, and rehab industries. So this comes from Tim. And Tim's got a series of questions, and we'll knock them out um, in sequence here. But Tim starts with, um, as a physical therapist, how do you go about valuing someone who presents with a musculoskeletal-related issue? For example, uh, buttock pain. So, Tim, it's going to depend on... On some some information as to how we're going to evaluate this person or how we're going to make our decisions as we move through this process, and so what we want to want to recognize is is that um, these presentations are a little bit different. So, for instance, somebody comes in with buttock pain, and so that's kind of vague. But what if what if they slipped and fell on the ice and landed on their butt, and now they come in with buttock pain? So now we've we we can categorize them into this. Um, what would be considered a clear or or an obvious presentation? It's one of these circumstances we would evaluate them with with a lot of good information that would lead towards okay, your butt hurts because you fell directly on it, and so now. Um, that seems obvious, right? And so we're going to treat them a certain way. So this is protection and promote adaptability and progressively store normal movement. And so so again, this is very straightforward. In fact, in some of these cases, they don't even need physical, f- physical therapy because it is so obvious. They go, okay, I fell on my butt. I just need to protect it, take care of it, blah, blah, blah. And eventually I'll come back to, to, to normal. Now, let's just say that... They've gone through that process, and so they've treated it as this obvious kind of a thing. But now they've got something that is persisting, and so now they have this this buttock pain that it seems like this thing should have healed by now, and and but they still have have an issue with this pain, and so now they come to see us, and now we might categorize them as as a little bit more more complicated because we do know that that, that something has happened um, in the past. Uh, we have that information available to us and so maybe they've gone through some other diagnosis so they come in with a known constraint change and so they say, oh, I have this. This showed up on an x-ray or this showed up in an MRI or they're presenting with something that is that is mechanically familiar. So we see a relationship um, as we go through our relationship and so we can identify a little bit more of the, the cause and effect. Um, that may be interfering with 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 normal behavior so again this would be a situation somebody fell on the ice they go through the acute recovery it seems to have gotten better but they still have issues and so now maybe they have like an adaptive strategy or an an exaptive behavior that is promoting this ongoing pain And so that's something that we can identify um, with with our evaluation now we can go to a third realm here where um, we're talking about a, a much more complex situation. So this is the land of the unknowns, and this is somebody that shows up with an insidious onset. Uh, of buttock pain. So everything under these circumstances is going to be um, emergent. And so this is where we have to um, identify what we can identify. So we measure what we can measure, we intervene, and then we monitor the behaviors. And so this is, this is where um, we, we see the emergent behavior, the response to the intervention, and then we would take the, the next logical step so again, maybe we have some exaptive behaviors here um, that, that are creating interference or not. Um, and But again, this is where we rely on our structure, our orientation, our muscle and connective tissue behaviors and our goal under these circumstances where we start in this complex domain is we want to get them moving into a complicated or or even better a clear situation where we can actually apply a best practice situation because when we're in the complex domain everything is emergent we just don't know what's going to happen because there's too many unknowns okay so tim goes on and he asks In the the physical therapist world, we tend to diagnose clients with particular syndromes or conditions um, to do so. We often use tests which have questionable accuracy. That's an understatement. Um, Or clusters of tests to reduce the likelihood of false positives using your model. Do you solely rely on a battery of table tests to establish whether someone is in a concentric or eccentric orientation? and not focus on identifying specific signs or symptoms, which would be correlated with specific musculoskeletal presentations as commonly taught in PD school. Um, And then he says, do you try to differentiate differentiate, uh, pathology? So Tim, I'm 30 years removed from physical therapy school. I would hazard to guess there's very little that I do um, that is left over from that, um, other than um, working with humans. So, Tim. Technically speaking, I do not try to identify uh, pathologies, but my model does it for me. So for instance, as I test and I intervene and I remeasure these behaviors that emerge, um, because of the iterative nature of, of the movement system, I have a series of checks and balances that allow me to identify these little outlier measurements. And so if I see interference um, that might be representative of a, of a constraint change or an exacted behavior, um, again, we will try to intervene to make that change, but a lot of times um, when're <laughs> when we're shooting for this, sorry, that's my little alarm that went off. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of times as we're shooting for this, um, we we might have some some form of interference that we can identify as a as a constraint change or as you would indicate a a pathology. Um, so again, if I have a true pathology, that inconsistency shows up. So, for instance, if I have um, I look at shoulder and hip hip range of motion measures, and and so they should mirror one another um, because of the iterative nature of the the movement system. And so, if I have one measurement in the shoulder that is unchangeable and symptoms persist. Um, then I might find that I do have a constraint problem. So I would need to send people out for more tests. So if we go back to your buttock pain example, um, let's just say that the, uh, we had our person that fell. They go through the acute phase. We move them th- through, through the process. We look at them from a complexity standpoint, and we find that something is unchangeable. And so now we say, oh, I might have a synovial joint that can no longer behave normally. I got to send you out for more tests. And so they, we send them back to the doctor or however your referral system would work, wherever you work. Okay. Um, Tim goes on. This is another, another question. So the patients seem to seek a diagnosis or want to know what's wrong with them, what narrative do you, do you use to not overwhelm them with the complexity of your model? Well, first and foremost, Tim, my model is actually quite simple once you get to, to using it. But the, the thing that you want to recognize is, is first and foremost is don't speak therapist, speak patient. They don't really need to know my model. In fact, they already come to me with a model in their head. So one of the elements of the, of the subjective is to determine what their concerns are. And as you do so, they're going to provide you with with a series of beliefs or what their reality may be. And unfortunately, in many cases, because they can go consult Dr. Google, um, they're going to distort reality to worst case scenarios um, based on the information that they think that they understand. So you become the one that has to reorient them to reality and hopefully avoid that concept of catastrophization that that many people run into. I don't think that they seek a diagnosis per se. What they seek is understanding and they want to know that they're going to be safe. So, calling something a diagnosis tends to put it into this clear, obvious category for a lot of people from a thought standpoint, and that 's comforting because obviously if it 's clear and obvious, then there 's a way to get rid of it or a way, way to to resolve the the, the problem. <clears throat> the goal then is to explain what the possible outcomes may be and how your findings and interventions may actually influence all of these these possible outcomes so again i um, 've actually had situations where people will come in. And, and we, we kind of chuckle about this, but they, they may have sprained their ankle. And they might be 40 years old. They've never done anything physical in their life. They've never had a painful situation. So they don't know that, that ankle sprains actually resolve and you can you can walk normally again. And and so in, in that situation, their reality was it's like, I've never felt this before. What does it mean? I don't understand it. And we give them that understanding and we can immediately put them at ease saying, oh, yeah, this thing usually resolves in about six to eight weeks. And in and, and many cases, you go back to normal life and you'll forget about it. So again, keeping them safe and maintaining a continuous narrative as you go through the process is very comforting for them. Um, So we'll do this with with um, um, how you execute and provide instructions. So whenever possible you have them, you give them a situation of uh, cues to provide internal awareness or or um, an external reference so they can have an element of control and that provides them an element of, of that sense of, of safety as you go through the process and you just keep them aware of what's happening. And so again tim I, I think that you've got a lot of great questions here um hopefully i touched on something that that is useful for you so you can kind of see how this process how this process works and how we would differentiate the the different ways that we would look at these situations because i i think that this is one of those things that that doesn't get expressed enough it's a very um, complex situation we're working with humans um, there's different presentations that are they're going to come into play. There's different ways of looking at things. But again, th- this is where falling back on, on a, an effective model, useful heuristics, good rules of thumb, um, because we're working in so many possible unknown situations that, that um, I, I think that the, the decision-making process and process in general, as you're working through these situations is so important. So Tim, thanks for the question. If you guys have any other questions, go to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com, and I'll see you guys next week.